Welcome to church. Come on. Uh, super excited to be here with you today. Uh, these past few weeks, we've been in a series called Creed. And we've been opening up the Apostles' Creed uh, and really pulling out these truths that, that we believe are affirmed in the Bible. If you don't know what a creed is, all it is is a simple statement of what the early church believed in. In fact, one of the earliest creeds to ever be you know, recited and written was this creed that was called Jesus Hocurios. Now, it's Greek. I said it in a Latin accent, Spanish accent, because I'm Hispanic. But uh, it simply means that Jesus is Lord. So if you were a Christian in the first century and you were in Rome and someone asked you, who is Lord? If you weren't a Christian, you would say, Caesar, Hocurios. Caesar is Lord, that, that he reigns and he rules everything. But if you were a Christian, you believed that Jesus was Lord. Like he was God. He ruled and reigned over everything. And this is kind of how they distinguish between Christians and non-Christians. You would get pulled over. They would ask you, who is Lord? And if you were a Christian, a follower of Christ, you would say, Jesus is Lord. And if you weren't, you would say, well, Caesar is Lord. And, and the tragedy behind this is that if you said that Jesus was Lord, that was enough to sentence you to death. In fact, Emperor Nero would impale Christians in his front lawn and light them up as torches. One of the very first creeds ever recited. And so today we're looking at the Apostles' Creed. And we're going to be looking specifically uh, on the subject of the resurrection. So there's this part in the creed. It says that the third day he rose from the dead. So usually when we talk about resurrection, the first thing that comes to mind is this kind of Easter Day message. Like, he is risen. Woohoo! You know? Um, But what I want to argue today is that the resurrection is much more than an Easter Day message. And it's much more than a verifiable historical event. What I want to show you from Scripture is that the resurrection is a person that you and I can have an experience with. The resurrection is a person that you and I can encounter. In fact, the resurrection is the thing that gives you and I access to God. And so here's my hope for you. My hope is that as our understanding of the resurrection would increase your relationship, your intimacy with God would deepen. And here's my big idea. If you're taking notes, it's this one thought that I want to communicate through Scripture today, and it's this. Because of the resurrection, we have communion with God. I'm going to say that one more time. You can pull your phone out, act like you're taking notes. Because of the resurrection, we have communion with God. And here's what I mean But with this word communion, I'm not necessarily talking about the sacrament of communion. We'll get to that. What I mean by communion is this very glorious, intimate relationship with God. It's the act of communing with him. So he comes and encounters his people, reveals himself to us, and then our response is to worship him, to glorify him, to fall in love with him. Communion, very glorious, intimate relationship with God. And because of the resurrection, you and I have this. And so with the remaining time that I have with you, I kind of want to plant ourselves in John chapter 20 and show you from Scripture how we have communion with God because of the resurrection. So will you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. John chapter 20, verse 11, reads like this, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? 
She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around and said to Jesus in Aramaic, Rabboni, or Rabboni. I don't speak Aramaic, so I don't know. But I know that it means teacher, because that's what the scripture says. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things. The word of the Lord. Because of the re- you may be seated. Because of the resurrection, you and I have communion with God. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word, Lord. God, I pray that as we unpack it, Lord, that it would take residence in our hearts, God, and that we would leave different. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so where we find ourselves in John chapter 20 is an all-too-familiar place for some of us. Mary is standing outside the tomb of Jesus, and she's weeping. She's crying because her friend, her savior, her king had just died. And that's all too real emotions. You know, she's feeling the despair, the depravity, the anguish of losing someone. And now she's standing outside the tomb, and the stones rolled away. But how did we get here? If you remember last week, Pastor Peter preached on Jesus was sentenced to death, under Pontius Pilate, and died on a cross for our sins. Now, just a few chapters earlier, Jesus was just hanging on a cross, beaten and flogged, actually to the point that the Scripture says he was not recognizable. In fact, the Bible tells us that, that, that the Roman per- persecutors were saying, hey, who are you? Because they didn't even recognize that it was Jesus. That's how badly he was beaten and bruised. And now Jesus has died, and the disciples are confused. They're like, it wasn't supposed to go down like this. Like, like this is Jesus. And so now they're surrounded by confusion, mourning the loss of a friend. And where we find ourselves is Mary shows up to the tomb. If we backtrack for some context, on chapter 20, verse 1 says, Now the first day of the week, Mary came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, side note, John was written by John, and in the book of John, he would refer himself to as the one whom Jesus loved. Now, I've heard plenty of scholars and theologians and pastors say John said that because he was so secure in God's love for him that he knew who he was. I think that's weird, okay? Because if you keep reading, he, he, he says this. It says, uh, they, have taken away, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Mary is freaking out because she, she doesn't know where Jesus is. Now, she shows up at the tomb, and she's concerned because it wasn't unusual for grave robbers to come invade these tombs and profit off the body. So before she even goes into the tomb, she assumes that Jesus has been taken away because she sees the stone rolled away. She comes and gets Simon, Peter, and John, and then it says this in verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, 
and were going toward the tomb. Verse 4, if you're reading, it says, Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Why is it necessary for John to mention that he runs faster than Peter? I don't know. But I'm saying it anyways because it's in the Bible. Both of them were running together, and they stooped to look in. He saw the linen clothes lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, the face cloth which had been laid on Jesus. It says, Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first, once again, we know John runs faster than Peter, also went in, and he saw, and he believed. Then it says they went back to their homes. And so where we picked up in verse 11, now Mary is standing outside the tomb, and she's weeping, experiencing very real, raw emotions. And then we know that she goes into the tomb, and she sees for herself that it's empty. But what transpires next just blows my mind. She sees two angels sitting there, and they ask her, why are you weeping? And then what we see happen next in verse 15 is that Jesus just comes out of nowhere. Like Simon and John, we'll pretend this is the tomb, were standing in the tomb. They left the tomb because no one was in there. Now Mary walks inside the tomb, and all of a sudden there's two angels and Jesus. Where were they before? I don't know. Uh, and so now we see Jesus having this beautiful conversation with Mary. And the first thing that he asks her is, Woman, why are you weeping? Now, I have two observations from the scripture, and this brings me into the first one. Observation number one, God cares. What's interesting to notice is that Jesus, the almighty, sovereign God of the universe, knows why Mary's weeping. Like, he knows what she's feeling. He knows what she's experiencing. In fact, a few chapters earlier in John 16, Jesus was having this conversation with his disciples, and he was reminding them, hey, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to raise from the dead. We also see it in Matthew 16 too. And if I was there, what would have went through my mind, like a good follower of Christ, is I would have taken notes, and I would have said, okay, you're going to die, and then you're going to raise from the dead. Boom, got it. Well, Jesus actually dies. And it seems like this truth that God has spoken over them has just disappeared because they're so wrapped up in their immediate circumstances. They're so wrapped up in the life that they're experiencing in church. That's just like you and I. Is that God reveals himself to us. We have these experiences and moments with God. And next thing you know, when life gets real and life gets hard, it's like, whoa, what's happening here? And in fact, this is one of the reasons why I can trust the Bible. I used to buy into this lie that for me to become a Christian, for me to become a follower of Christ, I'd have everything figured out. And I had to have my life put together. And that was the biggest lie that I ever believed. And I'm ashamed to say that I didn't even do the research to see why I believe that. Because that's not what I see in the Word of God. In fact, I see people like me who had these amazing, glorious encounters with God, walking on water. You know, I've never walked on water, but you know what I mean. Uh, Just doing life with the risen Savior, and next thing you know, they're questioning him. They're doubting. They're broken. They're feeling pain. 
Like, that's what I can relate to. And how Jesus cares for Mary is amazing. You see, instead of saying, woman, why are you weeping? A few chapters earlier, I said I was going to die. He just says, woman, why are you weeping? And he probes her heart. He sifts. He asks very personal questions because God cares. In fact, uh, Psalm 103, verse 13 through 14 says this, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. Two other translations says that the Lord knows what you're made of, and he knows you inside and out. And it's such an amazing reminder that we serve a Lord who cares for you, who knows you, and remembers you. And the reason why this is important to understand is because communion with God is not communion unless he knows you. And because we are so known by God, because you are so loved by him, we can commune with him. And this is what separates communion from any other type of relationship, is that, yes, there's this relational aspect where where I'm getting to know God, but guess what? He already knows me. And in any other type of relationship, it's the opposite, is that I get to know this person, this person gets to know me, and then, boom, I'm engaged, going to get married, June 2nd, shout out. Um, (laughs) But that's not what happens here, is that communion is initiated by God, because God knows you, and God knows Mary. He knows what she's experiencing, he knows what she's feeling, and yet he still asks, why are you weeping? And in the midst of her grief and her circumstances and this uncertainty, God still draws near. So if you think God is absent because of your immediate emotions or circumstances or whatever you're experiencing, the Bible says otherwise. And sometimes we can be so wrapped up in our grief that we miss out on the risen Savior standing in front of us. Yet he's still there despite me. God cares. My second observation is that God draws near. God draws near. This portion of scripture beautifully reminds us that, like I said earlier, in times when we are wrapped up by our circumstances that we can't see God moving, God is doing something in our midst. In fact, it says, Mary said, uh, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now, if it was a spiritual blindness that kept Mary from seeing Jesus, or if it was a really dark tomb, regardless, she did not recognize that she was in the presence of God. And yet, even when Mary wasn't on the same page as God, it didn't keep Jesus from drawing near to her. And so because of the resurrection, we can have communion with God. God can draw near. And so let me remind you why the resurrection matters, because it's not just a verifiable historical event, like I said earlier, which you can study later. It's not just a message we preach once a year. It's a very real thing. It's an experience. It's a person that you and I can have an encounter with. We can have a relationship with. And here's the most beautiful thing about 
the resurrection is that Jesus is alive. Like we have communion with God because he is truly alive. You can't commune with a dead person. And if you do, that's weird. And email Pastor Peter because I'm not touching that. Unless God is truly alive, we cannot have communion with him. And because he is truly alive, we can draw near to him because he is drawing near to us. And so here's the most amazing thing about the resurrection. Let's, if we were, we were just in Psalm 103, we just read in verses 13 through 14 how the Lord knows us. He knows what we're made of. But the verse before that really ties things together. It says this, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And the resurrection secures this promise for us. The resurrection removes all the barriers that were keeping you and I from God. The resurrection, the cross is the price for our sins, for the wages of sin is death. And the resurrection shows us that that bill has been paid, and it's our invitation to come into the kingdom. And so what I love about this is that now all the barriers have been removed. So what we once thought were keeping us from God, Jesus removes. He rises above death. He rises above the the immediate circumstances that are keeping us in bondage, and he draws near to us. The resurrection removes all the barriers. And you may may be in here asking yourself, like, how can God draw near to me? I'm glad you've considered yourself the exception. Let's see what the Word of God has to say. When we see Mary, we know Mary Magdalene is a prostitute. The definition hasn't changed much. And yet, in Mary's you know, former life where she probably identified herself so much with her sin, God still called her a daughter and drew near to her. If we keep reading, we're still in in, in chapter 20, we see on verse 19, it says that on that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where Jesus' disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Jesus came and stood among his disciples. And even when they were locked away in fear, he pursued them and stood with them. If we can keep reading, if that's not amazing enough, we we see in verse 24, Jesus and Thomas. Like we all know Thomas, doubting Thomas. Um, It says that although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. They were locked away. No one could come in, and yet somehow Jesus walks through the walls, stands next to the disciples, and says, peace be with you. So there's there's no wall too great, no barrier too vast that the Lord Almighty, risen Savior, can't come through to get to you. And this is just John chapter 20. I mean, the whole Bible is filled with this. Moses, like, strangled a man with his bare arms. David, you know, we, all, we always go to David, you know, David, we all know what David did. He committed adultery. We see all these amazing reference points of very real, very broken people that God still draws near to. And the resurrection secures this for you and I. 
Because of the resurrection, all the barriers have been removed. God draws near to us, and we can draw near to him and enjoy a beautiful, glorifying relationship with him. Because of the resurrection, we have communion with God. So our two observations when we're standing in this tomb is that, is that God cares. Like, he cares about you. He intimately knows you inside and out, knows what you're experiencing, knows what you're feeling, and he draws near to you, and he stands in your midst saying, why are you weeping? What are you feeling? I'm here. And he just doesn't leave you there. He embraces you. He changes you from the inside out. And so what do we take away? Here are two takeaways. He is risen. He is risen. We have been secured a glorious, intimate relationship with a living God. If Jesus was still in the tomb, then sin and death would still reign. But because he rose from the dead, he validated everything he ever said, conquered sin and death. And now as far as the east is from the west, so far my transgressions are removed from me. And I can have a relationship with God. He is risen. He is not dead. And here's where it gets cool. Let's go to verse 17. These three words. I am ascending. The ascension. One of the reasons why the ascension is so important, the God ascending, Jesus ascending back to heaven, is that it shows his ongoing life. Like he's, he's, he's still Christ, fully God, fully human, and he's not going anywhere. He's not going back to an empty tomb, and he's not leaving us. He is with us always. He is risen. We interact with a risen Savior and King, not a dead and buried religious leader. And our best relationships, I'll argue to say this again, are with living people, not dead people. He is alive. Second takeaway is this. He is with me. Friends come and go, relationships come and go, but communion is this secure relationship that I have with God. And everywhere I go, He is with me. Like I'm walking through HEB, He is with me. It's awesome. I might not be aware of it, like Mary wasn't aware of it in the tomb, but He is with me calling your name, calling my name, Alberto. And we have this promise that a risen Savior is with us always. And what's beautiful about the resurrection, if we can get this in our soul, is that communion with God is initiated by God. The word says that we love him Because he first loved us. We love him because he knows us. He calls us. He's with us. You are drawing near to God because he's drawing near to you first. 
to every single person in this room. Regardless of who you think you are, where you've been, he draws near despite you. When you're on the same page with him, boom, he's there. When you're not, he draws near if he's called you a son and a daughter. We commune with him. We have fellowship with him because he first loved us. And he's seeking you out, transcending all the fear, all the barriers, all the shame, all the circumstances, rising above it the same way he rose from the dead, calling you sons and daughters and wanting to commune with you. Are you communing? Are you in a glorious, intimate relationship with the living God? Anyone who's ever done anything great for Jesus was with Jesus first. And that's what we see in the scripture, is that his people are communing with him, in relationship with him, glorifying him and enjoying him forever. He is with you. Now, if I just left it here, it it would be kind of a bummer because I haven't told you how you get in on this. And that, you know, raises this question, well, well, how do I get in on this? Because if I just told you all this amazing, all these amazing things, it would be kind of, I, I liken it to telling you about, you know, the best restaurant in San Marcos and saying, man, at that restaurant, it's, it's just going to be awesome. Like, you're going to eat food and uh, it's going to care about you and, you know, it's going to be with you. You know, but it would be pointless if I didn't tell you how to get there. And so how do we get here? How do we get to a, a communing relationship with God where we're so secure that he cares about me and that he is with me? And here's the two words that the Bible says, faith and repentance. Faith and repentance, putting your faith in God, because how can you draw near to a God that you don't believe in? And so our faith gives us access to seeing God, to enjoying God, to communing with him. And what does repentance mean? A variety of things. But to keep it brief, turning away from our sin, the sin that Jesus died for, the sin that separated you from him, turning away from that and going back to the Father. Changing the way that you used to think about life and sin and thinking the way that God thinks about you. So we place our faith in God and we turn away from sin. Now, this just isn't the, the, you know, the, the stepping stone that gets you into the kingdom. I sincerely believe that this is actually part of the rhythms of communion, of being in a relationship with God. Every single day, I'm placing my faith in something, and I hope it's God. And as long as I'm still a believer and sin occupies this broken frame, I'm going to have a lot of sin to turn away from. So I place my faith in a risen Savior, and I draw near to him by turning away from sin. Faith and repentance. Because of the resurrection, you and I have communion with God. God cares about you, knows you, God draws near to you. Are you drawing near to God? He is risen. And does our life, our attitudes reflect that? And he is with me. Do I walk in such a manner worthy of the gospel like Paul said, 
that I'm just so aware of Christ's presence on me that it changes everything around me. Not yet, but I will. More than I did yesterday. And more tomorrow. The Lord loves you. Now, as we transition into the sacrament of communion, Jesus, on, on the night that he, he was betrayed, he, he grabbed the, this, these elements. It didn't look like this. But, but he said this. He said, you know, this, this bread right here, if I can open it. This bread right here represents my body. And, and, and he broke it. Symbolizing both spiritually and physically the brokenness that he would experience on the cross for you and I. And then he said, take this in remembrance of me. And then after the, the bread was broken, he, he got the cup that was filled with wine and he said, this wine represents the blood of the new covenant. The old covenant looked like this, keep the law. This new covenant, this, this blood is going to wash away all of your sins, cleanse you, and make you sons and daughters. And he, he gave the disciples the wine and said, drink this in remembrance of me. And so we, 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 this is the sacrament of communion, but we commune with God by doing communion. Because as we literally take this bread, we're remembering that risen Savior who was crushed for you and I, the death that we should have died. And as we drink the wine, we remember that his blood that was shed for us cleanses away all of my sin, makes me white as snow, and now I'm called a son and daughter. And so some instructions for this is that we do this in faith and we do this in repentance. This is such an amazing sacrament that's reserved for the children of God for believers, because we remember our risen Savior. And so as we uh, approach the table, let's approach it with a, with a pure heart, communing with God in remembrance of him.